Haley is joining me up here uh, for our message this morning. Hi, Haley. How's it going? Hello. Good morning. Glad to have you. Um, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so this week we are continuing on in our theme of marking the Easter season by looking to post-resurrection stories of Jesus to guide us. So as I talked about last week, these Easter stories, I think, really uniquely emphasize the both-and reality that we all encounter. A resurrected God who is both dead and alive, the presence of both grief and celebration, often at the same times, the intertwining of both clarity and confusion, and an ability to experience God in both mystical or spiritual ways and embodied or physical ways. So we are looking to these stories specifically to help us come to some helpful realizations about what it means to have active experiences of God or to be in partnership with God is how we put it last week. So what does it mean to be in hopeful partnership with an active God? I like that. I like both and, which was the phrase mm-hmm. that uh, you you regularly return us to. It's one of your yes. favorite phrases. You should probably just get it like tattooed on my yeah, forehead yeah, or something at favorites. this point. Uh, it's a life <laughs> message for you. But I, I think that, that I really like um, the both ands that you already named for us. One other one that I think about for our church and for sort of modern people trying to be people of faith is like we often say that uh, most people experience being a skeptic and a believer simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in in the past, in previous ages, it was like, here are the skeptics and here are the believers and they fight each other. But now that fight is not going on out there. The fight is going on mm-hmm. inside of all people. And that's okay. And we can name that and we can, uh, we, we can, um, we can live into that both and. I, I, I just, yeah. I think that's a useful one. And then the other one that I think about in terms of another both end that you brought to us last week, um, as we talked to, you, you mentioned, or you were, you were drawing from a trauma-informed therapist talking mm-hmm. about the stories post-crucifixion and how the disciples are in trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, 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 they're figuring out what to do that. And I, I liked, I think that that's really important that we can talk about um, experiencing God even when we are in trauma, even when we are... Um, when we are post-trauma, when we, when we were exhausted, when we just had a stressful day at work, when we had a fight with our spouse, whatever, like we, experiencing God is on the table there. Uh, it's not, uh, the, that, that really feels tied to that both end thing. So I like that. Yeah, I think the, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be following Jesus in the midst of whatever we're experiencing of, instead of once we've been delivered from it or oh, yeah. healed from yes. it or yeah. feel like we've arrived beyond it, have yes. conquered it, whatever it may be, um, but in the midst of instead. Yep. And so today we're going to be focusing in on how being in partnership with God requires us to expand our experiences of God. And I'll have a little nerdy moment here. Usually this is Vince's job, but oh, I get on. to be the come nerdy on. That's one today. A cheap shot. <laughs> cheap shot. You're just as nerdy as I am. It's true. Yeah. But <laughs> um, so today I want to just talk about really briefly this ancient heresy or competing body of thought with earlier early followers of Jesus that's called Gnosticism. I promise you this ties in. So there are different tenets within Gnosticism that some of them actually align with a lot of early Christianity, mm-hmm. but others are pretty problematic. And the two biggest features of this school of thought are a strict dualism between the physical and the spiritual, so a really strict divide, and the idea of secret knowledge. So to put it really simply, it limited what was good and divine to only the spiritual. The mm. body is bad. The body is bad. That's a lot of the more... Uh, ascetic uh, traditions mm-hmm. of the church come from that, right? Of like, you, you whip, you lash yes, yourself yeah. because the spirit is what's good. Yes, yeah. spirit is good, body is bad. Yeah. And then this reserved access to God to a very particular group of mm. people who possessed the secret knowledge. Yes, so they were yeah. the awakened. Yeah. 
And I think that the church today actually still has some pretty similar tendencies. Sure. That, that, that feels tied to what we experience today. Yep. Yeah, because we can restrict um, how we experience God to these very particular categories, and we can start to see only certain people as having more access to God. And on one end, this could be like, you have to be holy enough to know Jesus. And then on the other end, it's this idea of being awakened. Like you have to be woke enough to know Mm -hmm. the real Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really exists along a spectrum. Mm. But I think that we may place limitations on others or we may place limitations on ourselves and validate ourselves. Like I'm not really experiencing God because I'm not blank enough. Fill in the blank there. So the hope for today is to break down some of these categories and expand our outlook beyond who is in and who is out and what is in and what is out when it comes to our perception of our experience of God. Uh, yeah, and, and what we're capable of maybe yes. is, yeah. is a big thing that I think an ex- extremely common question that I experience um, as a pastor is people um, people wondering, or, or usually it's not wondering, it, it's... Um, you feel really, uh, you feel really trapped by this sense of like, why don't I have powerful hit me over the head experiences of like, like the people in the Bible did, or mm-hmm. or, or other people throughout history have reported. Um, it must be that I am not, you know, I'm not pious enough or holy enough, right? I'm I'm not good at prayer uh, like those other. I'm not I'm not knowledgeable enough about the Bible or whatever it is, and we tell ourselves that's why we don't have experiences like that. Um, and so I think I want to work today a different suggestion as we're thinking about expanding what we call experience of God. Um, with the different wondering is, um, are, the, are the actual experiences of people in the New Testament, like w- we're going to read from Luke today, mm-hmm. um, were they that different than the experiences that we might have today? Or, or are, they, are they actually quite similar? And it's just that they explain and describe them really differently. Mm. Like, obviously, we live in a totally different world, a different culture with different values and different images that hold us together and metaphors that make sense to us than the people did who were writing the New Testament, right? And um, but, uh, modern people live what, um, what historians would call, uh, we live within what, uh, the, the imminent frame as opposed to the transcendent frame, these big words, imminent and transcendent. And what that means is basically like, we live in a world that's not very enchanted, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, we don't really, when, we, when, when the weather is bad, we don't make a sacrifice to the gods, we you know, grab uh, an umbrella. <laughs> and so um, we, the, the imminent world is about what you can touch. It's about what you can measure. It's about what you can see right in front of you, what's imminent. Whereas a transcendent view, which would be many of ages past, would have more transcendent views where it's like everything that's happening is always infused with the spiritual and the mystical and the transcendent. Um, Now, but what's interesting is like transcendence is still very much desired and possible Mm -hmm. in, in, in our imminent frame. It's just that's not where we default to. But it's not like we don't care about transcendence within an imminent frame. I don't want to say that that's true about our life. Like, you just think about, like, the stories and the movies that animate us, right? Like, it's all about, like, some higher, you know, transcendent thing that is, that's not what's right in front of us, right? There's some purpose that we're tapping into or some superpower, right, that's that's on display. Um, or even, like, I, I, for, I always think of... Um, when, when we think about we live in this imminent frame, that's what we default to, but we still long for transcendence. The, the most, like if you can think of the most imminent thing in all of life, I think it's insurance policies. That's, that's the most, like what, what matters is what's right in front of you. And you think about like 
companies that advertise for their insurance policies, and none of them, like their, their messages are not like, your possessions are what matter, right? Like, n none of them say that in their commercials, right? They're like, protect your stuff so that you can focus on what matters most, right? Transcendence, right? They're, they're trying to get you to drive at something else. So it's not like in our imminent frame, we don't care about transcendence. It's just that it's not the default. And, um, and that means that like, we're just gonna talk about our experiences differently. We're mm -hmm. gonna explain the things that happened to us differently than people who lived in a transcendent frame like Luke, who we're about to read from mm -hmm. the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, maybe our actual experiences today aren't so different from those who wrote the New Testament or those throughout history who reported massive, powerful, profound experiences of God. It's just that we explain things differently. Yeah. That's, that's why I guess what I want to. That's what I want to wonder as we go along. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, that it's not necessarily our experiences of transcendence don't happen because they. They do. They do, yeah. But our perception of them and the language that we use to it's describe them is going to be different. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, every, every time we're reading the Bible, we have to do that translation. We have to think, this is a transcendent world. I live in a more, uh, the transcendent frame when they look mm -hmm. at the world. I live in an imminent frame when I look at the world. So there's going to be some translation. I think for me too, and maybe this is a product of the imminent framework here, but it's been more helpful to think of Jesus accompanying us within human experiences mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of needing to access this transcendence above human experiences. Yes, yes, yes. It's just a slight shift there. Yeah. But why don't we turn to the story that we're going to be reading today? Great. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 24. This is um, a relatively famous story from uh, the disciples post Jesus's resurrection called The Road to Emmaus. I'll read it and then he'll comment on it here. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Mm. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these, uh, there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they indeed had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found out it was just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then the stranger said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer things and then enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Sorry, let me put that back up for you. Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and the day is now all nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. I love that. <laughs> oh, it's, what, where'd you go? <laughs> then he said to, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scripture to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their company, companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord is risen indeed and he appeared to Simon. Then they told him what had happened to them on the road and how he had been known to them in the breaking of the bread. Okay. So we're going to take some time to look at this from a few different angles. But yeah. before we get into that, I wanted to do a little bit of storytelling here around this idea of their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Because I think this is some way that we use the language that we've got to talk about these experiences yes. of transcendence. Yes, yes. Of like an eye-opening experience. Maybe you've had this that you can look back on and say like, oh yeah, this was an eye-opening experience I had about my understanding of God or my understanding of myself or community, things like that. We often tie those things yeah. to the transcendence. That's an experience of God. That's an experience of the mystical, the spiritual, the transcendent. Yes. 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 It seems like something has been revealed that oh we didn't realize God. before. I, it's, it's all so meaningful. It's all so powerful, connected. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to share a little bit um, about what came to mind for me this week as I was thinking about this. And that was... Um, Really, my experiences traveling to India came to mind. Okay. So I went to the New Delhi area twice in college um, with an organization that doesn't quite exist in the same form now, but at the time it was called Truth Seekers International. And their main thing was using foot washing rallies as a way to connect with people and to kind of overcome the caste system yeah. in India. Mm. Um, so we'd go and have these really big gatherings with a lot of music and flowers and food and a team of college students and volunteers would wash the feet of those who had gathered. And it was really powerful. Mm. Um, but I do always have some hesitancy around sharing some of my experiences in India, just knowing how complicated the idea of missions can be. Yep. Um, and how this may bring up some different things for you and where you're coming from. And with missions, we have the range of outright problematic to really thoughtful and intentional. And I think it's important to recognize that across that full range, both beauty and harm can take place. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Both are possible there. So our school called um, short-term mission trips uh, global partnership trips okay. mm -hmm. with an emphasis on partnership there instead of missions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did a lot of prep work around what it meant to partner with local leaders and organizations, things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's still hard to not yeah. um, think about the potentially like colonizing and hierarchical nature of a group of mainly white students going into villages in yeah. India. Like totally. It's hard yeah. to ignore totally. that. So it really, it wasn't perfect. But I've, and I've done a lot to unpack my own role in those trips and perception of those trips. And I'm still really grateful that I went. Mm -hmm. Another both and for us Absolutely, today. Absolutely, both and, yeah. But tell, tell us why, like why, yeah. what, what stands out and you think like, I, I am still really glad that I did this even as it comes with complicated feelings. Yeah, so I think the reason specifically that this comes to mind as an eye-opening experience of God is because my idea going in of how I thought I was going to experience God and my actual embodied experiences were really different. Mm. Um, when I think about being in Delhi, it's really just this beautiful chaos is the phrase that comes to mind. Um, there's a ton of different religious influences there that are evident and particularly strong um, cultural and religious influences of Hinduism. Mm. So I had this idea going in. This was my mindset coming in from a um, evangelical college and church. I had the idea that it was going to be really hard to find God in all of that. That I was going to need to sort through all the false, and if you're just listening and watching, there's a lot of air quotes going to go on here, but false <laughs> ideas yes, and experiences yes. so that I could find the true God. Ah, I see. Um, that yeah. was what I was going in with. 
But early into my first trip, I found the complete opposite to be true, that it felt like there was less, if any, separation between this like material and divine that we often separate. Yeah, like yeah. everything a lot of ways felt further along than evangelical yeah. Christians. Oh, along. definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everything felt spiritual, yeah. and it's a really embodied feeling that's really hard to describe in words. Mm. Um, but I can remember sitting on these makeshift platforms, surrounded by tons of people, with drums playing and children running around, and they'd be tossing marigold um, petals, yeah. which was a sign of blessing, and sharing cups of chai. And I just remember looking around and expecting to feel really overwhelmed, and instead it was just this feeling of absolute peace. Huh. Um, and I don't want to romanticize the realities of people sure. that we were meeting with, um, which I think is what I kind of tried to do immediately yeah. after. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it's possible to hold all of that and hold this this really profound hospitality mm. and joy that I experienced that I hadn't experienced anywhere else before. Mm. And that changed me. Mm. And it changed my perception of closeness with God, I think is the really big takeaway there, that this embodied feeling of how saturated everything really felt spiritually. I love that. I love that. In, uh, in some ways, the um, you can't get around experiences where um, a group will go in, you know, intentionally into a different culture. There's always going to be layered dynamics of outsiders and insiders. Mm -hmm. And so in, in one sense, you are an outsider because you're not in your home culture, right? But in another sense, you, you know, like, like you said, there's, you can't help but separate experiences like this from this sort of like colonizing thing where in the global world, you're kind of the insider and everybody else who's not in the Western, you know, white-led world is the outsider. So there's all of these layers of challenging outsider-insider experiences. And I think that outsiders and insiders is, is, is an important thing to be mindful of when we talk about eye-opening experiences. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and if we can go back to this passage from um, the, this Road to Emmaus passage, and I'll, maybe I'll put it up on the screen just so we can, like, you know, as I'm talking, you can kind of remind yourself where we're looking at. Um, I think there are lots of little instances here where we have... Um, uh, one, one read of this that uh, has, has really helped me um, is from uh, a, a, a Catholic uh, um, teacher named uh, Father James Allison, who explains this episode is, uh, is where outsiders keep becoming insiders, hmm. uh, which is a classic sort of Jesus tradition story that we might tell. The last shall be first and the first shall be last, which is like we sang today in one of our songs. Um, the, um, there, in, in, in one of these uh, moments here, you can see uh, they ask, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who you know, hasn't heard what's going on? And Father Allison suggests that, that that line, stranger in Jerusalem, the best English translation of that phrase, uh, stranger maybe doesn't quite get it. Maybe the best word uh, that, that we might use, or a phrase that we might use today is resident alien. Is, uh, that, that, would, that, that, would be a, that would be a phrase that would more clo uh, closely evoke what's being expressed there. And so you wonder, you know, like, if somebody's, you know, if somebody's using that sort of, um, that sort of uh, way to address somebody else, are you the only, like, you know, uh, clearly you're not from around here, mm -hmm. you know, would be kind of like what we would say colloquially. What, I wonder what made them say that. Like, was it how the stranger looked? Was it how the stranger talked? You know, was it their dialect? Was it their accent? Was it the way that they presented themselves? Like, did they not get the cultural in, you know, what you're supposed to do? Did they not shake hands? Did that, you know, like, what are the things they're supposed to do with, when you meet somebody on the road? And, uh, and apparently, Jesus, the stranger here, gives away that they're an outsider immediately. 
But what happens in the story is the outsider becomes the insider. The mm-hmm. those who are supposedly in, who of uh, the, uh, the you know like who's who like didn't you hear what happened here? Suddenly have their eyes opened. Uh, there's another. There's like there's multiple layers of this happening in the story where we see later on it says that uh, some of the women said that uh, that that Jesus wasn't there. Now we needed to go check that out, obviously, because women are not trustworthy. But then the women are vindicated. The, the women were right, and so there's another layer of societal outsiders becoming the insiders and the insiders becoming the outsiders. The guest uh, uh, who is, you know, the, the stranger on the road, by the time he's about to leave, they're like, no, no, please, please come and be with us. And then as they're sitting at the table, who is the one breaking the bread that is sharing and, and, and leading the feast? It is the stranger, and they realize that this is Jesus. And so there's so, all of these layers of the outsider becomes the insider, mm. and that being what's happening with these with, with a lot of eye-opening experiences that we have. And I think that anytime we're talking about these both-and things, uh, these you know ways that like I must not be able to experience. God or spirituality or purpose or whatever it is because of fill in the blank. It's often because we're calling ourselves an outsider mm-hmm. and we're insistent like, yo, yo, at that, for the insiders, I get that that happens. But me, I, I, I just think like the, there, we, we, we often, I think, talk about like imposter syndrome when it comes to spirituality. Mm-hmm. We just kind of all tell the story of ourselves as an outsider. And I love this story because it's kind of like, great. Yep. And that's where God is. So it's like, we can't <laughs> use that defense to say like, um, and I don't, I don't think it's, I, I don't think we, we say that to like gaslight ourselves. Like you are experiencing God. You are, you're, you're experiencing God. I think it's like the idea of like, we don't consider ourselves capable or of capacity or like good enough to experience God. And this story is just like, uh, that's not even what this is about. <laughs> of course you can experience God. So that, 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 that's what really speaks to me in, um, in when we read this Emmaus passage. Yeah. Yeah. I think that ties into another lens that we can look at this from, um, this idea of moving from experiencing God through like the cerebral or logical or intellectual mm-hmm. in moving toward experiencing God in the embodied and relational because we set all these parameters around what it means to actually experience God and we kind of narrow that way. Did you hear something in your head? Mm-hmm. Did you, did you, were you reading the Bible and had an epiphany or something like that? All very heady. Yes. Very, very in your, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, Continue, embodied, yeah. Yeah, so as I was rereading this um, this week, something that stayed with me was that Jesus wasn't recognized when they're talking along the way. And as he's explaining parts of scripture, these conversations on reasoning and theology, instead he's recognized when he breaks bread, blesses it, and shares it with them. So it's this embodied nature of sharing a meal together that's really reminiscent of the practice of communion, which we do every week. I love this. So like, what was the most God experiential moment in that whole episode? It was when they were eating around a table. Yes, is yeah. That, is it, we don't call that prayer, but what if that's prayer? It is, I yeah. I love it, I love it. And I think it's especially refreshing for me as someone who spent a lot of time and energy in academic settings for this mm. to be the case, mm. um, that it's... Jesus is recognized in these relational embodied practices and not in all of the theological discourse. And I think you can take theological and replace it with whatever quality a particular community really prioritizes. Like you've talked about so far, this idea of, oh, you need to experience God through the contemplative and the introspective or the charismatic and extroverted and things like that. I think that's a lot of people's experiences, yeah, yeah. And it's not to set experiences against each other, like not to say that one is in opposition to the other, the intellectual is in opposition to the embodied. That's not the case. But I think it's really this idea of expanding the possible avenues that we can take Mm -hmm. to experience God, Mm -hmm. that there's more access points. 
Because the real danger here is the movement from um, going, like claiming that there's only particular ways you can experience God to there are only certain people that can experience Absolutely. God. Absolutely. And that is really dangerous. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but another thing with this too is that this passage often fits the description of a conversion story. So going mm. from not seeing to seeing, mm-hmm. not knowing Jesus to knowing Jesus. Um, I grew up in a religious culture where testimony stories were really mm-hmm. emphasized. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really big deal to share your kind of like before and after worthless sinner to saved believer sure. type sure. of a thing. Um, and this story was used as an example of a before and after, but I don't really see that when I read it. I think it's more of an expanding. They see in part, they have some understanding, they don't see fully, and then their eyes are more opened after sharing a meal. Yes. It's not a before and after. Um, There's a really great Sue Monk Kid quote that I've brought up before where she says, always we are waking up and waking up some more. And I love this because it keeps us from sorting ourselves into before and afters. Um, and from doing that to others too, that there's, assuming that there's like some enlightened, awakened, arrived status that you can achieve and that that status comes with more clear experiences of God. Yeah. And that's simply not the case. I mean, how cruel is that when we, when we are, we sort of live into the reality that it must be true and because I'm not having it, therefore I am not arrived. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of feel bad about yourself constantly because you're not there. Yeah. But yeah. instead this is permission to just keep waking up, yeah. keep realizing, yeah. keep learning and growing and seeking. Um, And I think there's a helpful piece of the story here where after Jesus leaves, they look back at their time and they say like, we're not our hearts hearts burning with with the, is so dramatic. I had a dime every time I said to that to somebody, (laughs) was not my heart burning within me when Liverpool scored that goal? (laughs) (laughs) Aside from that, I wonder. (laughs) Hey, hey, I have transcendent experiences of God watching Liverpool play soccer. It's beautiful. More avenues to God, not less. Thank you, thank you. Expansion, yeah. But it's it's this idea of being able to name God's presence in retrospect, and I wonder if that has happened to you, where you can kind of look back and see, like, oh, I think that I actually was experiencing some form of yes. God with me in that moment. Well, and that's encouraging because uh, even then when we, when we have been in a space, because maybe that's happened, maybe that's compounded over many years where it's like I've had experiences, but I can actually look back and reclaim something from my past and mm-hmm. say, like, I, 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 I might experience God in the present by remembering that that story that happened to me, that experience that happened to me, perhaps God was a part of that. And that can speak to me even in the present. Like that, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a beautiful thing that can reclaim maybe seasons of our lives that have felt more devoid because the pictures of what it looks like to experience God were, were so narrow. And, and this allows us to expand even as we look at our past. Yeah, and it's, I think it's really anchoring to be able to do that, that it's not, experiencing God isn't reserved for all of the arrived people, like yes. all the afters. Yes. The two that are walking on the road with Jesus directly don't get it and they don't have the full no. picture and they still have an active experience That's of exactly God. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and if anything, in the story, they, they are the insiders. And so it's mm-hmm. like they're the people who should be experiencing it. But even that, it's like, no, we're talking about a different thing here when we talk about experience of God. There, there's, there's something else going on. Yeah. There's a um, Rachel Hald Evans children's book mm-hmm. um, that we've had in our kids church before we've mm-hmm. used called what is god like and it's my son ollie's favorite mm-hmm. right now but mm-hmm. it has all these different metaphors and um, imagery of what god is like and the last page simply says that we can know what god is like by thinking about what makes us feel safe what makes us feel brave and what makes us feel loved mm-hmm. and i love that idea of looking at our present experiences and looking at our past experiences through that lens of what made me feel safe what made me feel brave, brave and what made me feel loved? And can I name that as the presence of God? Can you name God? that as the presence of God? I, th- I mean, that.
that is, you talk about people who are trying to um, sort through what are my experiences of transcendence when I live in that imminent frame. That, that is a wonderful way to do that. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll say just you know briefly one I, I, a story that comes to mind for me when I think about naming things as or, or experiencing something and calling it like wow that was that was a moment of experiencing God even though I default so much to a different thing in my imminent frame. I I remember um, very early on in the life of this church when we were mostly just dinner groups meeting, um, and we did have some things happening on a Sunday, but we were mostly just people who were gathering in the middle of the week for dinner. Um, and then we would, you know, like just talk about life and, and go around in a circle and share what's hard and, and take some time to pray for one another. And uh, there was one moment that really stands out to me where one person who was in their first year uh, teaching, and if, if anybody has ever been in a first year of school teaching, it is a trial by fire, and you will know how difficult that is. So this, this, this person in the group was in their first year teaching, and they were just like, like you know, they were, they were a shell of themselves. It was so mm-hmm. hard because I, I cared for them so much, but they were just, it was clear that they were exhausted all the time, uh, in, you know, like unsure about like who they were and, you know, like w- whether they believed in themselves or whether anyone believed in them. And so they were sharing some hard things about um, their care and the difficulty that it was to care because it felt like it was so worthless to care, but also they couldn't help but care, and they're, and they're sharing that. And then this, uh, this one, another friend in the group um, who I think even to this day, I'm still in touch with him a little bit, um, would, is not really sure where, like on that whole, I'm a skeptic and a believer at the same time, that's totally him. He doesn't really know what, what, he, what he regards as anything. And so uh, he was there because he cares about like, you know, he, he likes doing communal things. And he said to this friend who had just shared, this first year teacher, um, he was, he was not one usually to share encouragements when we would go around because I think that felt a little bit too much like prayer and that was a little bit, he says, I just want you to know that when you talk about this, it's really beautiful. And I think that's probably hard for you to see mm-hmm. because it's all that you're sharing is so hard. And, I, he, and, he's, and you know, he says, I, I don't want to say that to like belittle what you're saying, but it's just, it's beautiful to see you care. And I'd like in that moment for me, I was like, God, <laughs> God is here. Like, it was so powerful. It was beautiful to me to experience that. And I don't know how my friend regarded that. I, d- I don't know how this first-year teacher, exa- I mean, like, I think she was moved, you know, but, but that, I look back and I think, that's what it means. That's what it means to, mm-hmm. to tell stories like Luke tells about these two people on the road today. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like, is to, is to look for those types of things. And the, uh, the word that, um, that one writer has given me to, ex- to explain that is resonance. Mm-hmm. I think we are looking for experiences of resonance. That is when, 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 a, when, a, when a tuning fork you know, is, is right here and then I, I, I play a note, eventually the tuning fork will ring at the same note as the other thing. And it's like, when you have two things that are suddenly ringing at the same note, it's an experience of resonance. And that's what I had in that moment, in that group. And I think those are my, when, that's what my antenna is up for when I'm thinking about what does it mean to experience God, when I have an experience of resonance. I love that. When I think of um, having experiences of resonance, there's this Mary Oliver line that I love where she says, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I just, I think that that really is what, where resonance comes from is just simply paying, paying attention. attention to what's around yeah. us. Where, what, what am I ringing in sync with? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe sometimes it's the like beautifully profound and overwhelming, but maybe it's also just the really simplistic. Yep. Um, this is the same poem that we get the classic quote: "The tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious wild life?" And precious life, yeah. That's one um, that quote that made Mary Oliver famous. It's a poet, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important because that gets used out of context so much mm. that her answer isn't to what do you do with your life? It's not be more productive or mm. <laughs> figure this out or do things the right way mm. or um, all of these things that I think get really prioritized in a lot of different communities, but especially in religious communities. Instead, it's not push to succeed or make more money. It's yeah. be curious, pay attention and lay down. <laughs> like Be yeah. in the grass, just lay down, um, stroll through the fields. You can't argue or reason your way into finding meaning a lot of the time. It yeah. just comes from these resonant experiences of paying attention. Break bread with yes. friends. Yes, yes. Ask questions, yeah. It's yes. so yeah. different from this push to like accelerate and accumulate or even mm-hmm. in religious mm-hmm. context, the idea of having like mountaintop experiences of God. Like yes. this is just far more humble and sustainable and hopeful. Even, even uh, I will say, and I, 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 I want to say this with... Uh, I want to say this carefully, but I think even the idea of something that we hold really dear, personal growth, mm-hmm. um, what, what in many uh, Christian traditions would be called discipleship, which is incredibly important. And that's why I want to say this with, I'm not saying I don't care about personal growth. We care deeply about personal growth. We are always talking about that. But there is, there is a way that we can idolize personal growth or discipleship that does not allow for the seasons that we do need to just lay down mm-hmm. and be in the grass and not push ourselves. Like I, I was speaking with a friend this week of just like being in a season where maybe the maybe you're in a season to not do the deepest push yourself work of personal growth. Maybe you're in a season where you need to like just let you know, pay attention, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sit and slow yourself. And so even these most even these really, really good pursuits that we would that that in general we're all about have to, there's that both and again, mm-hmm. right? Like we have to find ways for us to to embrace those, but also not let any of those rule our lives and become a cruel taskmaster over us. That's not where we find God. Uh, we, we, you know, like the, whether it's the both and or the, you know, outsider becoming the insider, whatever, whatever image helps you to remind you that, that's what we need to keep front and center is uh, the, there, there will be both seasons in our lives. Sometimes it is going to be push, 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 grow, grow, grow. And other times it's going to be lay in the grass, pay attention. Do not, uh, do not try to be overly productive. Mm-hmm. It really is just an invitation to slow down and pay attention to whatever is in front of you, mm-hmm. whether it is things that are, I don't know, pay attention if you're in the stage of go, go, go. For and, sure. For but sure. also pay attention in the slowing down and in the simplicity of sharing a meal with people and mm-hmm. paying attention to your needs. Mm-hmm. Um, But as we close, I really would love to actually pray these words from Mary Oliver, um, just as an exercise. This is her poem, The Summer Day. So if you are in Chicago and lovingly looking back at two weeks ago and it was like 75 (laughs) and sunny. It was amazing. It was so nice and are a little disappointed. Maybe this will help transport you into more summery imagery here. But I think um, just looking to her words as this concrete reminder of what it means to pay attention, what it means to be open and to look for more avenues toward experiencing God, not toward placing limitations on our experiences or on anyone else's. So would you pray these words with me? Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. 
the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around her with enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Amen.